Hello and welcome to the March 2009 podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and coming up later in this programme is an interview with crime writer Stav Sherez, who tells me about his dark new novel, The Black Monastery, set on a Greek island. My primary concern as a writer is violence and how we represent it and how we deal with it and what it tells us about ourselves. My first guest today is Lewis Wolpert, Emeritus Professor of Biology as Applied to Medicine at University College London, and a distinguished writer and broadcaster on many aspects of science, such as depression and malignant sadness, and the evolutionary origins of human belief in Six Impossible Things Before Breakfast, both of which are available in paperback from Faber. His new book does not shy away from big questions either. It's entitled How We Live and Why We Die, and the clue to Walpert's line of inquiry is in the subtitle, The Secret Lives of Cells. He argues persuasively that in order to understand many things about human birth, growth, development, and ultimately disease and death, we have to look at the activities of our cells. Nonetheless, as he told me, that approach to understanding what we are is a relatively recent development in human history. It took quite a long time, historically, for people to understand that we were made of cells. But I would have thought about a hundred years ago they began to think about cells. But it's really only with genes and proteins and DNA and really some of the modern technology. It's really the last 50 years that cell biology has really come into its own and people have begun to understand something about their complexity and how they function and how it influences our health. Now, for listeners who may not be especially scientifically literate, can you perhaps just tell me you've mentioned there cells and proteins and <laughs> DNA? Obviously, you can give a definition, but just, just tell me what we're talking about here. What, what are you sort of zooming in and looking at? What are the sort of essential components that, that you're focusing on in the book? Well, I think it's important to realize that we all come from one single cell, the fertilized egg. It divides many, many times, and we are a society of billions of cells that all come from that fertilized egg. And the cell is just very tiny. There are about a million. If you go from the tip of your finger, you walk along your arm to the tip of your nose, you'll go through at least a million cells. They're very small, so you can't see them with the naked eye. They're surrounded by a very thin membrane, and really the function of cells is determined by proteins. Proteins are the workhorses, the wizards, the geniuses of cells. And what genes, which are made of DNA, what they do is they provide the code for proteins. But it's really proteins that makes your cells function and my cells function and keeps us alive. We know that, that DNA is a, is a complex code, and I, I, one of the things I took from your book was that proteins are extremely complex. It's not the simple you know, case that there are only a few types of proteins. There are many different types, and they're, they're constantly changing. All the genes do. Genes are very passive. They do nothing except provide the code for proteins, and that decoding is done by other proteins, largely, and another nucleic acid, messenger, uh, messenger RNA. Proteins are really a long string of small subunits called amino acids, but they fold in very complex ways. And they do absolutely remarkable things. The way your muscles contract, that's proteins. The way nerves conduct impulses, that's proteins changing in the nerve cell membrane to bring about the electric charges. I'm afraid your life is really entirely based on proteins. <laughs> You use the metaphor, I think you, you say the metaphor dates back to the mid-19th century, of cells as a society 
which goes some way to sort of capturing the way they, they function in relation to one another rather, rather than being isolated. Sills are a society, and most many of them cooperate uh, with each other. There's no one in charge of this enormous society. So they have to behave themselves and do well, otherwise things go wrong. And cancer, of course, is the classic example where a small group or a single cell goes wrong and can kill the rest of the cells. Another metaphor that you quite frequently use is cleverness. You, you ascribe cleverness to cells. Now tell me what you mean by the cleverness of cells. I think cells are just amazingly clever. I mean, let me make it clear, we don't fully understand the functioning of a single cell in all its details. It's very, very complex. And I suppose the cleverness, the subject that I know most about is how embryos develop, how we come from this single cell, the fertilized egg, and the way they talk to each other and interpret and how they bring about changes in shape are sort of beyond, <laughs> beyond imagining. They are just amazingly clever. If they were human beings, you would say, oh, what a clever group this is. No, they are, they, they are simply amazing. And one of the things which your book made me really ponder mm -hmm. properly for the first time was really how much develops, how much complexity develops from a single fertilized human egg. Well, and how much is, how much is sort of inherent within that? I'm terribly sorry. Almost everything about you or most things about you are determined by the development of that single cell which multiplied and gave rise to you. Yes, the environment does play a role. And yes, as you grow up, you do learn things in the environment. But how you remember things and how it changes you is the influence that the environment has upon the cells. We are nothing more than this enormous society of cells with no one in charge, and yet it functions and they cooperate. It, it, it's, just, it's just amazing. Sorry, I... I am still mind-boggled that we come from a single cell. I mean, it's you can't see that fertilized egg, and yet out you pop. Now, you you touched upon there the issue of of predetermination and yeah. the question of nature versus nurture. Yes, and I I had I had taken from the book the fact that you that you felt you know that, that we we couldn't sort of say this is the gene for, no. but. You, you do at one point talk about criminality and you say if we could discover the biological basis for criminality, criminality then perhaps that would lead to new ways of sure. tackling it. And I wanted to ask you to, to unpack that a bit. There are a lot of genes. It, uh, yes, one shouldn't talk about a gene um, uh, for criminality, but there may be a group of genes that does. So you don't want to say, and also it wouldn't be a gene for criminality. It would be a set of genes that have gone wrong that have led to, to criminality, and that's what I mean. But you see, I'm always struck by the fact that many people fear snakes. Now, I can tell you that however much you frighten a child about an electric plug, I've never heard of a child being frightened of an electric plug. You know what I mean. So there are many things that people don't like thinking about as being with innate within us. For example, it's clearly innate that we have causal beliefs about cause and effect because children from the age of a few months, you can show by experiments, have innate beliefs about physical cause and effect. And if they saw this cup moving without something pushing, that they'll stare at wrong, that they know that something's wrong. So there's more innateness to us than I think people, particularly social scientists and even psychologists, like to admit. Now, when it comes to public understanding of science, which I know you've got a long-standing interest in, 
I wondered how you felt about areas like cloning and stem cell research yes. and chimeras, which it seems to me often get muddled up and and rather traduced in, in the popular press, let's say. The press is quite bad about reporting science. I mean, there's a famous example, which you probably saw, of that mouse with a human ear on its back. That wasn't a human ear. That was a piece of cartilage just to mold it to look like a human ear. And all the stuff about Frankenstein foods and all that. I must say, I think a great deal of bioethics and worry about things is, do you take a phrase from Mark Twain, is moral masturbation. It has really very little basis whatsoever. Now, cloning, I'm not against cloning, except for the fact that the child would almost certainly be abnormal. So I would ban cloning of a human being without doubt. I think the issue about taking embryonic stem cells from an early human embryo, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever because the embryo may die, but with IVF, with in vitro fertilization, which happens to, with thousands of women's use, thousands and thousands of embryos are lost. And the idea that the Catholic Church has gone down the line saying that the fertilized egg is human is simply nonsense. So with cloning, if cloning could be achieved without no, abnormalities no, being introduced, yes. you would have no ethical have objection. No objection to it. No, I, I feel people should be allowed to reproduce in any way whatsoever until you can show that this having a bad effect on society. Now, you write in the book about cells and why we age, because cells are very good at, at repairing themselves and, <laughs> and restoring themselves and replenishing themselves. So why do we age? It's slightly controversial, and that's my next book <laughs> is on aging. And the standard view is that we age at simply wear and tear. And so a mouse ages when it's a couple of years old, but an elephant doesn't age till it's really many years old. Evolution doesn't give a hoot about you once you reproduce and your children are safe. And so there, it only provides protection for cells and repair mechanisms until that's achieved. But basically, Aging is wear and tear. And you mentioned some interesting research on the people of Okinawa in Japan yes. who seem to, to last longer because they eat less. There's very good evidence throughout the animal kingdom that low calorie intake increases old age. How happy and well you are in that old age is another matter <laughs> altogether. But there is good evidence for that, yes. You're old, but you're hungry. <laughs> um, no, you may not be hungry, but... <clears throat> I mean, a lot of things also get worse with old age. Well, I mean, my memory, for example, for certain words and things like that is really quite, is really quite bad. You mentioned cancer earlier, and in the book, you say that cancer may be the price that we pay for cells' amazing ability to repair and replicate themselves. Well, what happens with cancer cells, they become asocial. In other words, they no longer obey the controls, keeping cells from replicating inappropriately. And that's the price I'm afraid we pay. Many, I mean, the way we grow, the way we develop is cells multiplying. And unfortunately, sometimes this can go wrong. It's a very complicated process. And those cells become cancerous and they just want to gobble, eat all the food and move to other places and they kill the other cells. Cells also provide an area of research for looking at mental health too. You talk about the complexity of the brain in the book and how at a cellular level one's mental well-being may be affected. To understand how a brain works you have to think in terms of cells. Um, I suffer from depression and I would love to understand depression terms. Thing, but one of the features of depression is there's a molecule called serotonin 
and you don't have enough of it surrounding the cells in a particular part of your brain. And if you can deal with that, um, things get better. And with Alzheimer's, it's the death of certain cells in the brain. So I don't think there's any illness that you can really think of that doesn't involve cells in some, in some form or another. And you say at one point in the book that the neural networks in our brain are of such complexity that, that we may never understand them fully. I mean, it, is that is that a pessimistic remark, or is it, is it is that simply something you think we must we must reconcile ourselves to? Some of the things that people are doing, you know, in understanding networks and understanding the brain are astonishing, and you know, trying to get computers to behave in a brain in a brain like way. But it is so complicated, and there are so many connections that I just wonder where it will go. No, but that's just me, and that may merely reflect my ignorance. I wondered in general how sanguine you felt about about our ability to make progress in these very complicated areas. You say that d discovering the ability to reprogram cells without them introducing other harms sure. would be like turning lead into gold. And I wondered what you, what you, what, what you felt about the, the, the well, future. Well, I think the recent work on stem cells, where you can take a, you know, a cell from your skin and turn it into a stem cell, is simply amazing and that is just turning a boring cell into gold just how the research with stem cells will go i'm just always a bit nervous about things being oversold there was remember there was great excitement about gene therapy 20 30 years ago but it turned out to be much more complicated than people thought and it just may be the same with stem cells but i'm very hopeful that good will come of that lewis walpert how we live and why we die is out on the 2nd of april in hardback my second guest today is Stav Cherez, whose first book for Faber, The Black Monastery, is also published on the 2nd of April. A Greek detective on the point of retirement, two English crime writers, and a series of brutal ritualistic murders on a Greek island with a dark past come together in Stav's new book, along with some gruesome scenes which will change the way you look at the humble centipede forever. I asked Stav if he knew from the start of his writing career that crime fiction was the genre for him. Not at all. My agent told me my first book was a crime novel, and that's how I found out I was a crime novelist. But my primary concern as a writer is violence and how we represent it and how we deal with it and what it tells us about ourselves. And so for me, the natural repository for that is the crime novel, because one, you can get away with much darker, more horrible stuff than you could ever get away in a mainstream novel. And two, the crime novel at its essence deals with the repercussions of violence, so not necessarily always so well. There are some very graphic scenes in the book. Mm. I wonder how you got yourself into the right <coughs> mental space in order to, mm. to tackle those, those very violent images. This is my kind of love story book. Compared to my first novel, Devil's Playground, which dealt mainly with the Holocaust and snuff movies, this was, dare I say, rather easy and not too horrible. Unfortunately, my head's full of that kind of stuff all the time. And so it's more kind of getting it out on the paper actually helps me rather than me having to kind of build up to write that kind of scene. So unfortunately, I think I've got the right temperament for writing kind of dark crime. Your first novel was set in Amsterdam and this new book is set in Greece. How did you gravitate towards Greece for this one? I was on holiday in Greece. Devil's Playground had just been published. I was actually working on a different story, which I thought might become my second novel. And I hadn't been to Greece for like 10, 15 years since I was kind of a teenager. 
And while then it struck me as great fun, sun, sea, sand, it kind of took on this time when I went back there, it took on a very different aspect. It kind of, there was a mysterious, sinister kind of sense to everything. The way those islands are very insular, the way everyone's very closed up, the kind of labyrinths, the actual nature of the architecture, the way everything's kind of twisted and all that. And so that kind of got me to begin thinking about, yeah, I'd like to write a book set here. There was also a lot of history on the islands, which is something I always look for. And one of my favourite books ever is The Magus by John Fowles. And so I've always kind of wanted to write a book set on a small insular island. And then I had, um, I was in my hotel room and I saw a centipede crawling up my curtain and it really freaked me out. And then I knew centipedes, grease, that could work. Yeah, I'll, n- I'll never be able to look at another centipede with innocent eyes again after reading this book. They they really have a sinister part to play in it. <laughs> I, c- I can't look at them at all, period. I'm totally scared of insects. It's my one phobia. I mean, centipedes, so not being technically insects, share enough of those characteristics. Just seeing it brought out this atavistic kind of sense of fear in me. And I kind of understood then on a subconscious level that it would work in a book because there is something very strange about them in the way the legs and everything, something that's both very kind of human and yet totally alien. As you say, the island has got a, a sinister aspect to it. There's the contrast between the tourist resort by the sea and the hinterland, but also within people themselves, the, the inhabitants of the island, there's a sense of, of the mask and the front and then something much darker behind it. I think Greece is very like that. I think especially the islands. I mean, obviously, we ourselves are an island country, but those small islands tend to be even more insular than us. Because they've been cut off from the mainland, they still kind of, not to generalise too much, but a lot of them still live in a kind of old world of feuds and hidden secrets. And obviously, the heavy emphasis of religion means a lot of stuff is kept under wraps and people don't necessarily talk about things that we would talk about day to day. So you do get a sense of that, but also the actual nature of the landscape is very puckered and kind of folded and it's all mountainous. And and that seemed to kind of mirror the fact that the people seemed very, I mean, on one level, they obviously enjoy the bounty that all this tourist trade brings. But on another level, they're seeing their island, their culture, their actual traditions kind of being replaced by cheap pizza places and all that. And, you know, no one likes that. So... So I think I tried to look at the book, that kind of very double-edged sword where you need something to survive and yet that's something that you need to survive is also the very thing that stops your culture from surviving and your kind of identity. And I think that would lead to a kind of a kind of shrouded kind of behaviour, not necessarily two-faced, but just a kind of behaviour where, yes, you have to treat the tourists well, but at the same time, you know they're killing your island, your culture. And in the passage you read, which listeners can hear on the Faber website, you describe the Black Monastery, which is the literal and metaphorical centre of the book, and the layers of history that that contains. And that's obviously important to you. I always start a book with landscape. It's always, it was Amsterdam that gave me the idea for the plot of Devil's Playground. It was being in Greece, as I explained, that gave me the idea for the plot of the Black Monastery. And part of what I'm sensitive to in landscape is this kind of layering of history which we get very much in Europe you always have this sense I mean you walk around London and you see buildings and you see signs of kind of the what happened before and the way they've been renovated but it's always present and kind of buildings 
like cultures work as a kind of palimpsest where however much you try to raise the traces of what went before they're always going to be there and they're always going to be readable and for me that makes it much more interesting because in a way a novel and in a way especially a crime novel deals with that because it's always the past intruding on the present and lives as palimpsest where kind of old feuds old histories old resentments seemingly up under the surface but actually are right there bubbling and just need one little thing to break through and then explode into the present tell me about the character of nikos the policeman who's i suppose a sort of moral center of the book and also has a very strong relationship to the island and to the island's past for some reason i always find myself writing about aging detectives now and kind of i'm interested in people looking back on their lives and wondering what choices what things led them to where they are now how certain decisions they made 20 30 years ago that seemed totally inconsequential at the time actually diverted their life totally so nikos is someone who grew up on the island he was born there he was actually there serving as a policeman in the mid 70s as a rookie when he started out and then he leaves and goes to Athens the mainland and stays there for 20 30 years he's persuaded back to the island by his chief in Athens i think for him it's a way to kind of reassess his whole life i think going to Athens has meant that he is a kind of he's kind of tossed away in a way that kind of all the events that happened to him in the mid 70s on Palassos the island and kind of tried to restart his life but of course we can't ever do that our pasts are always there the consequences of our previous actions will always be with us i think subconsciously he goes back to the island because he realizes he's left things undone that things need to be squared up he knows it's his last job before retiring and he is determined to square up these things that keep him awake all night both for the island and for himself but i don't think he realizes at the time he accepts this only later in retrospect can he see his real reasons without giving too much away staff can you say a little bit about you, you mentioned palimpsest and it seems there's a sort of <coughs> folding over of time here and mm-hmm. events seem to be repeating themselves from the, from the early 70s there's a bunch of murders happening at the moment which seem to perhaps be copycats of a series of cult murders that happened in 1974 on the island i'm very interested in the doubling up of events both in black monastery and devil's playground and through history and the way certain things take on different resonances depending on their context i think it's partly again to go back to the fact that you can't have a shrug off the past the past will come back to haunt you obviously i've taken a certain literary license in kind of making it so similar but i think we see that in our lives i think that's how we kind of see things and we do see things in the context of things we've done before or left undone before and i am interested in doublings and twins and so there are a lot of twinnings of characters of events events that happened before that seem to happen again events that seem to happen that have happened before i just think it makes for a more interesting density and textual kind of um strength to the book to give it that kind of layering and again it's the kind of metaphor the palimpsest is a good metaphor i think for novel writing where you are layering past and present even if you're writing a story in the totally in the present tense it's always the characters have their past with them one of the doublings you have is 
crime novelists. Not one, but two crime novelists mm. are among the central protagonists of the book. And that allows you, I suppose, to ask questions about really what you're doing, doesn't it? About Because there's a, there's a mm. subtle running thread about looking for patterns and whether there are patterns or whether it's all randomness, mm. which must preoccupy you as yeah. a crime writer. Very much so. I think I'm learning to see that my the things I'm most interested in when I'm writing tend to be representations of violence. Devil's Playground kind of looked at how we look at the Holocaust through its representations. This time I was kind of more interested in how we write about crime and I'm very interested in how we're on one level we abhor crime and we say how disgusting it is and violence and how horrible it is and we turn our eyes away and yet all our entertainment all our best-selling books and films are really violent are normally crime stories and so i wanted to look at that to look at this kind of double sway of entertainment versus abhorrence and i thought crime novelist would be a good way to kind of dramatize this I also was really interested in the character of Kitty in someone who's been writing crime novels and been quite successful at it and suddenly is thrust into a real crime with real victims and realising that actually everything she's written is very much this kind of gentrified construct and that she hasn't really looked into the after effects of crime, the way every violent act has an exponential effect that will go on through time. So I wanted to look at that and then I had two writers because initially I was more interested in Jason as the unpublished writer and what someone would do when their dream was so kind of burning. As time went on and the book developed, I actually became more interested in Kitty and again going back to how a crime writer deals with a real crime and how she suddenly realises the kind of real pain and all that and how she then tries to put that into her own work. So the doubling of the two, apart from being interesting in terms of plot and character, was really a way to look at how I think, you know, as crime novelists, we look at the murders, but we don't look at the effects of the murders on peoples. And I was really interested in that. And I was interested in how a writer in a book would then actually verbalise that or would look at that. And that ties back to your things about patterns and signs and whether the world is... Pre, you know whether everything is predestined or random or chance we can't know we can never know these things we can only decide whether we want to make a pattern out of something or not and as a crime novelist obviously you always choose to make a pattern because otherwise the plot falls apart i wondered if in the character of jason who's kind of on the outside looking in at the beginning if you were sort of remembering your own beginnings or how uh, some of your, your own feelings about you know wanting mm. to be an, on the inside very much so i mean jason was very much almost like me, though obviously I didn't stalk a famous writer to a Greek island. Perhaps I should have done, and, you know, I would have had a bit of fun. But Jason was looking at that desperation to succeed, to do well, and the way, especially these days in kind of modern tabloid culture, people will go to actual extreme ends to achieve pretty honourable results, but the means themselves tend to be a bit that. I also wanted to write about a character who... It's slightly questionable morally at the beginning and it's mainly because of his cowardice because he can't actually go up to Kitty and give her his novel that he follows her to Greece. So it's not really cowardice out of some bad thing but out of one of his own failings and how he then tries to readdress that when he's in Greece, when he 
befriends her and when he realizes the impact of what he's done and the consequences of that. And you mentioned that you wanted to look at the repercussions of crime and I really liked the way in which you really sort of took the lid off the pressure cooker that this island has been there's been so much hidden and suppressed for the last 30 odd years and yet the impact of of these crimes mm. under the surface has been really profound as i said it goes back to what i was saying about every act has unforeseen consequences even when we kind of try and understand everything we'll never understand the whole kind of nature of an act and the way it will affect both people and a community at large. I was very interested in what this would do on a small community. I think something like this would happen in London where kind of on one level we're totally overwhelmed by brutality and horror that it's just another day in the city. On another level we don't have that sense of community and that sense of wholeness which perhaps is good because when you do have that sense you can only have it broken. When the kind of crimes that occur in the book occur in a small place it does make people start questioning their beliefs, their values, their sense of community. It makes them look at themselves in a new way. And I wanted to look at the way that would go through two generations and the way it would affect a separate generation from the generation that was actually around during the actual acts themselves. I was talking to Stav Sherez about the Black Monastery. There are full details about both books in this podcast on the Faber website, as well as many other interviews and features. You'll find it at faber.co.uk. Next month's podcast will feature New Zimbabwean writer Bettina Gappa talking to me about her first collection of short stories, Analogy for Easterly. And journalist Oliver Balch will be telling me about his travels through the vibrant but troubled continent he depicts in Viva, South America. You can be sure not to miss that and all future programmes by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. Just go to the podcast page and type Faber in the search box. Subscribing is easy, quick and free. I hope you'll join me again next time. But for the moment, thank you for listening and goodbye.